Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's time for the Bible gig. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, deconstruct, superpowered demigod. I, I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, postmodern. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, deconstruct, structuralist, young, and etc. 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 Superpowered demigod. High time for another Bible geek, I guess. Uh, let's see how many questions we can squeeze in today. Uh, here's one uh, from. Oh, boy, this is a long one. Where's that name? Jonathan Looper. Thanks, Jonathan. Here we go. Um, I'm interested in what the Roman Catholic Church teaches concerning the salvation of other religions. While doing research on my own, I've discovered that there seems to be quite a bit of debate surrounding the Second Vatican Council. It seems to me that two distinct schools of thought emerge. For example, there's one school of thought which seems to think Vatican II radically changed Catholicism from an exclusivist to an inclusivist religion. This group may argue that although it is Christ's saving grace that is the mechanism of salvation, being faithful to one's own religion or performing good deeds in life will lead them to such salvation. A second school of thought I've come across seems to argue that Vatican II didn't change anything at all and that members of all other religions can be saved and that their religious practices may prepare them to receive the gospel, but they must actually convert to Catholicism before death if they want to achieve salvation. The banter back and forth um, between the two groups reminds me of recent statements that Pope Francis made concerning salvation. The Pope had mentioned that Christ died for everyone and even atheists can be saved. The first school of thought I mentioned would take this as a sign that simply doing good works regardless of your religion would grant salvation. However, the second school of thought would be quick to point out that the Pope was not changing any doctrine, and the Pope was simply restating what had always been said. They may be inclined to say that all non-Christians can be saved, but they must first convert to Catholicism before death in order to actually be saved. The Vatican II clarified or convoluted, depending on your viewpoint, its position toward non-Catholics by adding special clauses to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism mentions that any statements the Catholic Church makes concerning salvation of non-Christians 
is not aimed at those who, by no fault of their own, have not or could not possibly have heard the gospel message in their lifetime. They also add some very ambiguous language concerning the Muslim and Jewish religions, stating that the church has a special relationship with the two groups since they share ancestry with a common god. But the writing is ambiguous as to whether or not these groups will be A-OK in the eyes of God. My question is this. Do you know if the official Catholic position toward a person of a non-Christian religion, such as Hinduism or Buddhism, who has heard the Catholic message but continues to reject that religion for his own, would be damned in the eyes of the official Catholic Church? Fortunately, a growing number of churchgoers don't seem to care much for what the official doctrine states one way or the other. A recent poll of church attendees suggests that around 30% of Protestants and 50% of Catholics believe being a good person outweighs what religion you happen to be raised in and that being a good person will lead to salvation regardless of your theological stance. There seems to be a shift in American thinking which stresses being a good person over one's beliefs. Hopefully this trend will continue to grow, and the church, as well as people in general, will become less and less discriminatory toward people of different beliefs or ethnicities. But nevertheless, I'm curious as to what the current official Catholic doctrine teaches today. Well, Jonathan, I uh, am not sure. It's very difficult to say what Pope Francis believes. We already have a kind of a historical Francis problem because he will say things that uh, get spun different ways depending on who you talk to, and understandably so, given their uh, their ambiguity. Like uh, if if you say the Catholic Church wants to welcome gays, well, it's been a long time, if ever, that they said, hey, gays, get the hell out of here. Uh, no, they, they said, sure, come on in. Uh, but, you know, uh, we uh, deem it a sin to, for you to have a, a sex life, just as people that are not married, uh, we, we assume you know you're not to be having sex outside of marriage. Uh, now, that's between you and God, but uh, you should know we consider it a sin. I don't tell sinners to to hit the bricks, get out, or anything like that. And uh, I don't think these things are considered to be mortal sins. And even if they were, they'd be forgivable. Well, what about non... uh, So so it's hard to know what uh, Francis believes about it. He he often is not saying anything especially new, but somebody apparently not familiar with the traditional stance of the church uh, doesn't know that, and it sounds new to them. Sometimes uh, he is... um, uh, saying something that's uh, that conveys a general sentiment, but uh, he's not laying down any specifics. Um, what, is, what does it mean to say the atheist can be saved? It's not too late for him, or as an atheist he can be saved? I don't think uh, he uh, spelled that out, at least. I don't know that he did. Is He, uh, he said, let's stop alienating people by... Uh, pushing into the front of the store window our condemnation of this, that, and the other thing. Well, he isn't saying that we're not going to condemn him anymore. Uh, he might mean that, but but all he said was, uh, let's not be stupid when it comes to PR. So, I, what the heck, who knows? 
Anyway, uh, among theologians who take a more liberal stance, uh, there are people that take the anonymous Christian view of uh, Karl Rahner, who said that uh, though admittedly, uh, you know, there are people that have never heard of Christ, and uh, and uh, yet they are not patting themselves on the back in a self-righteous manner. They're, they're trying to live a holy life, and they're all too aware of their inadequacies in doing it. Uh, they're poor in spirit. He says, uh, in the eyes of God, these would count as anonymous Christians. Now, some people start screaming at that and say, oh, that's paternalistic. You're, you're recruiting them despite themselves. And uh, what, it's not good enough to be Buddhist? Well, look, uh, the guy has reasons, though I don't agree with them, but understandable reasons for believing that only those who believe in Christ, or let's say that only those uh, are, I'm sorry, uh, that the only way to be saved is through the sacrifice of Christ. But he's saying um, you're in if you're the kind of person who would be receptive to the gospel, but uh, don't have the opportunity, uh, you're already heading in the right direction, much as in Acts 17, that the pagans were groping toward God. Uh, I don't take that as too bigoted. Um, but uh, there is another uh, version of that Ramundo Panikar, a very, very fascinating uh, theologian, uh, propounded. He said that uh, God uses the, re- the sacraments of the religion a non-Christian belongs to to convey the saving grace of Christ. So even the religions are, are uh, uh, allowable, if not God-ordained, vehicles of salvation, but a lot of people are going to be surprised to get up there and find that it's Christ. So it wouldn't be much of a step beyond that to say... Uh, they may think they're seeing Krishna or Amitabha Buddha. After all, you know, it doesn't matter whether you expected him to have a beard. Uh, you know, what the heck? Uh, so I'm not sure if there's really a lot of difference there either. I don't believe that uh, the Roman Catholic Church harbors universal salvation. I think they do believe. I mean, they some have kind of, like Teilhard de Chardin and others have kind of implied that, but I think the original, um, the official doctrine is that there is a hell and there is a purgatory. Now, what they consist in is different. I, I think Pope Ratzinger uh, said that, yeah, hell is a fiery place of torment and that Pope Francis said, no, it's not. Uh, but one way or the other, there's some kind of an eternal punishment. Now, Catholics don't believe in salvation by works. They seem to kind of believe in a synergism approach. You're working together with the grace of God. I, the Orthodox Church believes that too. I'm not sure that is fundamentally different than when Billy Graham says that God is holding out the gift of salvation and it's a free gift, but you do have to accept it. Right? I can give you a million bucks, but you got to take the million, right? Or you're still in poverty uh, and so forth. So I'm not sure if that's really all that different. Um, and uh, it's just a way of sort of countering predestination and universalism. Um, traditional Catholics have said there is such a thing as baptism of desire, which is very much like Karl Rahner's later um, 
anonymous Christian theory, but uh, it's I think the the notion there is only slightly different. It's almost the same thing, but it sort of answers a different question. It says that uh, if there are people who, through no fault of their own, cannot hear the gospel. Uh, then uh, an extreme that's an, an exceptional case and if they would have accepted it well I guess I you know I guess it really is it does amount pretty much to uh, Rahner's view which apparently wasn't that revolutionary after all uh, you, it's not your fault and uh, you're you're gonna be saved of course many fundamentalists say that too right the fundamentalist Protestants God knows if you would have accepted it um and I, I think that's uh, I think that is still the official view. Now, what they would say about good-hearted people that, like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who, uh, who certainly knew about Jesus and the New Testament and loved the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't going to become a Christian. He didn't think he had to. He can still love that stuff and live it out um, as a Hindu when he was still loyal to that. Um, there was, uh, or how about uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a really wonderful Jewish mystical writer. I remember as a college uh, sophomore, I attended InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and so on. I was assigned this book in an intro to religion class, and I said, There is, and said to myself, There's no denying this man knows God. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I heard that uh, a professor of mine at Wheaton College, where I went for a summer, uh, actually met Heschel and tried to witness to him, which seems grotesque to me now, and I guess even did then. Well, he didn't need to convert, uh, it seems to me. Well, uh, what about somebody like that? And uh, I, I like what Tillich said, that if you meet with a devout member of another religion, even if you're a Christian, you can't deny what Peter saw in Acts chapter 10, that God has those everywhere who, who know him. Now, what about an atheist? Well, uh, I uh, I think you, you really would have to uh, say something like, I think a, a logical extension of what Rahner said and and this may even be what Pope Francis had in mind, uh, you, you have to think of Paul Tillich, who said that the name of the power of Christ is active, even where the name of Jesus is unknown. Uh, and he said that, uh, that um, once it matters what one's ultimate concern is, and you can call it God or the truth or whatever, and uh, and if it's ultimate, well, this is not an idol, this is not a false God, because the ultimate has many names, it has to, to, to even begin to comprehend it. And uh, he, uh, oh, let's see, um, like it's it's no guarantee of course no christian would say it is a guarantee that you're going to be saved just because you say oh yeah i believe it it has to be your ultimate concern and Tillich was certain there were many uh so-called christians that wouldn't qualify um uh let's see there's, what there's something else Tillich said maybe it'll maybe it will uh come to me um go and see now you know uh oh man but uh, that uh, like 
Yeah, yeah, this is it. Tillich once said that the atheists, uh, the, the God atheists reject, they are right to reject because generally speaking, uh, theists are worshiping an idol. Uh, and Karl Barth would have agreed with him on that. I think he did agree with him uh, that uh, you uh, whittle God down to a reflection of yourself. That's no God. That's uh, ridiculous. Uh, and, and so I think Pope Francis might be thinking of something like that, uh, that uh, there are atheists Who's, and you and I know plenty of people like this, whose very zeal for the truth prompts them to reject the God concepts they have heard. And uh, if it's truth itself that they seek, Tillich would say, and did say, well, in my book, they are seeking God. It's really semantics. I'm not trying to... to co-opt or recruit them to spy. Oh, you're a Christian, even though you don't know it. Uh, I know better than you know. No, it's just what he considers to be a true state of the new being wouldn't hinge on uh, believing any particular name. So it's possible the Pope has gone that far. Who knows? But um, who knows if he's even thought it out systematically. Uh, the uh, uh, Buddhists, Moonies, Christians, everybody has trouble trying to to uh, infer a system of thought from the sayings of uh, their founders. You know, even if uh, you have a core of authentic sayings, you can't necessarily uh, squeeze an ethical or a theological system out of them. Okay, Reuven says, uh, my question concerns an unusual passage in the Quran. In the 33rd surah, we read, um, it's Al-Azab, uh, 3340. Muhammad is the father of no man among you. He is the apostle of God and the seal of the prophets. Surely God has knowledge of all things. This seems like a very unusual thing to say. It is similar to the Christian verse where Jesus was born of a woman. Galatians 1. Uh, implying that there were those who didn't agree what do you make of this, and do you think it should be used by Muhammad mythicists? Uh, I don't know uh, what the context is. That doesn't necessarily mean anything with the Quran, which is often incoherent. But I get the impression that this is a statement about his independence, uh, an important trait in ancient holy men, Simeon Stylites, uh, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and others, uh, people would approach them and ask for a judgment on some matter because they knew that they were free from vested interests. And I, I have a hunch that that's what's going on here. And the point is that Muhammad uh, isn't and shouldn't be appealed to as a kind of clan leader uh, that would uh, restrict his authority uh, and, and its, his sphere of influence to a particular group of his descendants. But that's, that's not what he is. Uh, he is the, the seal of the prophets, a much higher authority that, that all uh, Muslims are uh, obliged to obey. Uh, that's what I get out of it anyhow. Uh, let's see. Um, 
another one from Reuven uh, concerning the Jewish esoteric text Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, which many Jews past and present believe was written by Abraham. Since Muslims and Mormons believe Abraham was given scripture, it shouldn't be surprised, surprising that such a work would exist. In the opinion of the Ramak, I forget which rabbi that's a nickname for, Abraham wrote it, and Rabbi Akiva redacted it. What are your thoughts on this text and its origins? Clearly, it could not be 3,800 years old, but could it be as old as the Hebrew Bible? I, uh, It's not out of the question, because it's kind of... I want to refer everybody to a really interesting book uh, by uh, Rachel Elior called The Three Temples, which goes into the origins of Jewish mystical thought uh, back in the time of uh, the Hasmonean Schism. And uh, it, it uh, shows how this kind of Enochian Judaism believed in new revelations and so forth, some of which are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it they deal with... Uh, creation and the order of the heavens and all that there was uh, the Merkava mysticism the the vision of the heavenly throne chariot and so on I I, I mean this presupposes uh, knowledge of the development of the Hebrew language and uh, what it was like in certain uh, eras and so forth but especially since you have this redaction um, I would say that that uh, it's possible it's as old as Christianity from my standpoint of ignorance, right? But that uh, some of what it says about creation shares the same sort of gnosis that, that Jewish and Christian Gnostics speak of in other forums around the same time. Hugh Schoenfield certainly found it... Uh, to illuminate some of the material in Colossians and Ephesians, Schoenfield's fascinating book, Those Incredible Christians, deals with this. I love that book. And uh, let me suggest that the note that Rabbi Akiva uh, redacted it might be a clue that he wrote it or that it was at least a contemporary work that uh, somebody knew to connect with him somehow but wanted to pertain I'm sorry to retain a uh, uh, the the pose of it uh, it may have been a I mean obviously as you say it's not as old as Abraham if there was an Abraham but uh, it, it to say that Rabbi Akiva edited the thing might be a way of saying well yeah I know you only saw this in our times or the recent past but that's just because it was edited for circulation it was really much older the same way that the Zohar was supposedly written uh, by uh, I forget but it's way way back there in the second century CE I think I've forgotten the name, but in fact, it was no doubt written by Moses de Leon in uh, the, uh, I think, the 13th century uh, CE. Same sort of thing, I'm guessing. Another question about uh, the origin of the Book of Ruth. Is it possible that the work was written as a response to Ezra and Nehemiah's opposition to mixed marriages? Ruth is not included in any book outside her own book, and the 
an unmentioned there, and the author's choice of Moabite origin for Ruth is seemingly impossible when Moabites were enemies of Israel, because that's when it's said, right, and would not be included in the lineage of the royal house, because, you know, Ruth says that, uh, the book of Ruth says that the son of Ruth and Boaz um, became a dis- uh, an ancestor of King David, but that's an interpolation into the text anyway. Um, since the books of Esther and Judith appear to be mostly fiction, we might be seeing a genre within Jewish writing where strong, intelligent women are used as literary devices to encourage similar behavior in all Jews. Uh, yeah, could be also think of the Song of Deborah, which mentions not only the prophetess and judge Deborah, but also uh, uh, Jael, who uh, staples the uh, the Canaanite general's head to the floor. Uh, and uh, yeah, that could well be. And, and I think, uh, and this is actually an old critical opinion, which I think is probably correct. It is uh, Ruth and Jonah are... Um, counterblasts to this uh, let's purify Israel of any uh, heathen admixture. As you say, the uh, viewpoint propagated in Ezra and Nehemiah. What? Uh, you uh, Jews have married pagan women? Well, tell them to get packing. We only want the true race here. And uh, uh, that's uh, and that's what I think is at stake uh, here. Jonah doesn't want the uh, pagan Ninevites to convert to Yahweh worship. No, to hell with them. He wants God to nuke the place. And the same thing in Ruth. Uh, It's like, hey, uh, God doesn't discriminate. If this woman wants to join the house of Israel, that's great. She becomes one of the mothers of Israel. So I think that's exactly what it is in both cases. Editorializing against the... uh, the exclusivist policies. The Old Testament is certainly like the New Testament, as Ernst Kesemann described it, that it contains uh, very different rival viewpoints clashing with one another. Oh, let's see. Daniel says, um, is there anything to the names of the Queen of Sheba and Bathsheba being similar. Bath just means daughter of. Um, I uh, That kind of uh, link appeals to me, but it, uh, it sort of depends for its plausibility on there being just a few instances of any given name that happen to pop up. Uh, in the Bible. Uh, No doubt loads of people were named that, and that does mean daughter of Sheba, but that usually would probably mean her father was named that, and uh, there is a Sheba, right, a rebel uh, from the northern tribes that causes Israel to secede from Judah already in David's time, immediately after the Absalom fiasco. Uh, It's conceivable that uh, uh, the writer thought that Bathsheba was the daughter of this guy, uh, but the uh, Queen of Sheba—that's uh, that's a place name, right? Saba or Sheba down the Persian Gulf coast. But who knows? Um, uh, and Daniel says also, did David choose Jerusalem to try to unite the northern and the southern tribes? 
Yeah, the theory which I first read in Martin Notes' History of Israel is exactly that, that that uh, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city-state, and uh, it belonged to none of the Israelite tribes, and that's why David decided to go conquer it and make it the capital, because it's more or less on the border of uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south that way. I mean, since it was a kingdom, a city-state, uh, then uh, he really was the king of three realms. And uh, but the but since it was just a city, uh, they it's it's exactly analogous to the choice of Washington D.C. to be the capital of the United States. Wasn't in any of the northern states or the southern states. I mean, ex- exactly the same notion. So yeah, I think that is the implicit point. And, uh, mm, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, I got time for this. Yeah, this is from uh, uh, Neil McGettigan, also known as Herr Tesla. Uh, is the first chapter of the book of Genesis? I'm sorry. In the first chapter of the book of Genesis, it seems that the world before creation was one made of water, and the earth was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Uh, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land New Jersey, uh, earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called the seas and God saw that it was good. It's from the 1901 American Standard Bible. It seems as if the book of Genesis follows the metaphysical thought of the Greek philosopher Thales who held that water was the single universal substance. How common was hydromonism among the ancients? Did Thales import this idea from the Hebrews just like how Plato imported many of his ideas from Hindus? I don't know if we know that, by the way could just be great minds thinking alike or is this evidence that Genesis may have been written much later around the time Thales lived in the 6th century BC what saith the geek yeah Wellhausen uh, pointed this out that those who say that all Genesis is not trying to tell us how the world was made but only that God made it no no sorry Uh, Wellhausen said this is obviously an attempt at scientific cosmogony the same thing Thales and these other guys were doing and at roughly the same time. Uh, If Genesis was written during the exile, then uh, the P source, uh, that is uh, pretty much contemporary, close enough with Thales, and I think it is the same idea. Uh, God didn't create the waters, uh, and uh, it's when it says it was without form and void, uh, it's... uh, it does mean the uh, the amorphous mass, uh, the chaotic ocean. In fact, the words without form and void are tohu wabohu, which are abstractions of sea monster names, Tiamat and Behemoth. And uh, so he, um, it's a kind of demythologized step towards science, natural philosophy, they used to call it, because... Um, they didn't have the benefit of scientific uh, 
observational technology. So that is, I think, exactly what was going on there. Um, was it uh, was it more common than that? I'm not sure. I think of uh, the cosmology of ancient India, where you had, uh, especially in uh, yoga philosophy and and Samkhya. Uh, Hinduism, you have the idea that there is a kind of vast ocean of uh, prakriti or inert matter uh, and that suddenly there is a kind of a rain shower of purushas or or life monads or jivas also called and that uh, once they uh, peppered the once still surface of the cosmic ocean of Prakriti, then things started to happen. And again, I think, I think this is like Empedocles. Uh, you, you suddenly had elements form of, of different kinds of particles and all that. Now, whether that's only analogous to water or is supposed to be water, it doesn't really make much difference, actually. But Thales did say it was water, and so does the priestly creation account. So I think you're quite right about that. Herr Tesla... Um, well, I better get going. I know this is a short one, but uh, that's all I can manage for today. I hope to have another geek in the works pretty quick. I'm, I've got other uh, things I must do, some editorial work, and also I'm trying to plow through my uh, forthcoming book, Holy Fable, which I think you're really going to love. Uh, I'm learning new things as I write it, and... Uh, it's going to be pretty darn big as well. Uh, if you don't have copies yet of uh, my book, uh, The Historical Bejesus, or The Human Bible, New Testament, they're available, uh, say, 20 bucks from me, including postage, and I'll sign them. Uh, ditto for the symposium I co-edited with Frank Zindler, Bart Ehrman, and the Quest of the Historical Jesus of Nazareth. I don't have copies of any of the others, though I suppose most of them are still imprinted on Amazon. Well, I shall see you soon on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Anderson. on the firing line So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible And look up to the stars when they shine Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.